Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And if you cast your mind back to about a week ago, uh, I was looking at the uh, US Army's air protocols um, in the 20s and 30s and what US officers and US politicians thought uh, an air force should be like, what it should be capable of doing, and what its big kind of geostrategic purpose actually was. Now we're going to look at Britain. Um, and Britain is obviously the, the other power that produces uh, large four-engine bombers uh, during the 1930s to prepare for uh, a war probably with Germany um, in the not-too-distant future. And again, we're looking at The Bombing War by Richard Overy, a, a brilliant book um, if you are interested in the, 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 the politics um, and the strategy of bombing during the war. Richard Overy uh, writes about uh, Britain's view of um, air warfare. He says, In Britain, commitment to some form of independent bombing offensive was kept alive throughout the 20 years that separated the unfought air campaign against Germany in 1919 and the onset of a second war in 1939. Britain had been the victim of a, a bombing campaigns in 1918 over the over the city of London. Um, there was a belief during the latter stages of the war that if the war continued for much longer, then uh, large-scale uh, reciprocal bombing raids would have to happen over Berlin, and there would have to be an air war actually over. Uh, the the German uh, German airspace itself. The British during the twenties and thirties were more preoccupied with the dangers of uh, an air attack uh, and the difficulties of air defence. Um, during the uh, mid nineteen twenties, um, the air ministry was reviewing strategic possibilities and thought that perhaps even um, a war against France could potentially occur 
if the Locarno Pact was broken, if France had to invade Germany in order to restore uh, the Locarno Treaties, the British might step up in support of Germany and even face uh, a, a, a French air war over London. Um, the uh, ministries um, concluded that um, if the French bomb London, we can count on our superior morale and striking power to ensure that the Frenchman squeals first. So the idea was that um, working class Londoners would be able to take the pressure of bombing uh, and that the British would have the wherewithal to strike back effectively. And in 1928, British Chiefs of Staff insisted on securing a firm description from the RAF on the war object of an air force. So this is something um, that America kind of debated with, wasn't sure about, was uh, uncertain about what an air force was there to achieve. Was the air force um, in question going to be um, designed to pound enemy cities to rubble, or was it designed to support infantry and armour on the battlefield and be um, uh, light aircraft capable of uh, quickly changing the nature of a battle? Richard Avery writes, In the meetings that followed, the Navy, Army, uh, Navy and Army Chiefs of Staff made it clear that in their view, the vague commitment to attacking the enemy economy and population was not only contrary to international law, but departed from the traditional principle of war that the main effort had to be devoted to defeating the army in the field. And an easy truce was established between the services on the basis that the aim of the Air Force in concert with the Navy and Army was to break enemy resistance, and to do so by attacks on objectives calculated to achieve this end. So the way that the, the compromise happened between the services is that there was a kind of a degree of administrative ambiguity about what the Air Force was for. The uh, Army and the Navy um, were semi-placated in the notion that the uh, Air Force was there to win the war, and the idea of mass civilian bombing uh, and steering away the focus of events from the battlefield itself wasn't raised. I suspect that despite the kind of moral objections that the two other services might have had to civilian bombing, in terms of their own sense of kind of security and their own sense of, of importance, um, which all kind of uh, bureaucratic and you know, governmental and, and military uh, organisations have, uh, they were concerned about their kind of career longevity. Uh, a new technology like uh, aviation, it was uh, feared, might make uh, armies and navies uh, obsolete. In our own time, uh, the uh, automation of warfare, the use of, uh, of drones and robots... Um, presents uh, all sorts of uh, ethical and um, strategic dilemmas, but also it presents um, army officers uh, with the concern that the age of, of mass armies might be over and uh, the and war might be kind of conducted from computer screens. 
The RAF, anyway, had considerable leeway to define what the objectives were and how best wars could be won from the air. Now, other services um, wanted the RAF to um, develop a kind of a, what we call a balanced force that could offer support to the Army and the Navy, that could defend the uh, British airspace from attack. But the Air Force itself viewed bombing as its primary purpose. Um, it remained uh, dominated by this notion that bombing uh, defined its purpose um, as a modern force that could revolutionise warfare. And that's the key thing. The RAF saw its role uh, as being the, the kind of the disruptor, the game changer, uh, the, the um, force that could win wars in entirely different and new ways. Richard Overy writes, In a survey of RAF development written after the end of the Second World War, Robert Saundby, Deputy Commander of Bomber Command during the war, claimed that the air staff in the 1920s saw clearly that the bomb was the offensive weapon of the Air Force. Um, and indeed, in the first edition of the RAF War Manual, published in 1935, it was claimed that the bomb is the chief weapon of an air force and the principal means by which it may, it may attain its aim in war. So where did this thinking emerge from? Well, one of the key areas that um, influenced the views of the RAF was its interwar service uh, across the British Empire. Um, and we'll come to that in, in a moment, but this were people such as Arthur Bomber Harris um, had learned about air power in that way. Um, when it comes to considering what uh, bomb or bombs might be uh, used for, the RAF basically uh, continued to rely on fairly unverifiable assumptions about the social fragility of the enemy. Assumptions that proved to be wrong on both sides during the war. It was assumed by um, Hitler and Goering that British cities could be, um, British working class morale could be shattered by uh, aerial bombing. And the British assumed the same. And it has, in both cases, the, the reverse uh, effect. It hardens morale. It actually strengthens the leadership. Um, it actually uh, places the population more squarely behind uh, their leaders than, than before. Much as with um, America and the US Army Air Force, it was believed that um, vital centres, centres of uh, industry and communication, uh, could be destroyed by the RAF, and these vital centres would basically be the weakest part of the um, the enemy's uh, industry and the enemy's economy, the enemy's society. Um, and it would hit them at the most vulnerable point. Um, and this would mean that for the least amount of blood and treasure, uh, the greatest amount of uh, damage could be done to the, uh, the enemy power. The RAF War Manual stated that all modern states have their nerve centres, main arteries, heart and brain, and by attacking these, uh, air forces would delay, disrupt and disorganise 
um, the vital centres so much that the enemy's uh, national efforts, the the ability of the enemy to kind of organise and carry on, would collapse, not just through injury to the social body, uh, but by uh, the effect this might have on the collective mind. Uh, and the manual stated, uh, moral effect, although the bombardment of suitable objectives should result in considerable material damage and loss, the most important and far-reaching effect of air bombardment is its moral effect. The moral effect of bombing is always severe and usually cumulative, proportionately greater effect being obtained by continuous bombing, especially of the enemy's vital centres. And with that in mind, that does explain um, the British and American ideas uh, around bombing, and it explains the outcome of um, the of initiatives like the Combined Bombing Offensive of 1943-44, of round-the-clock day-and-night bombing that was designed to bring the enemy to their knees. How effective this ultimately was is always a great matter of debate. The uh, belief that bombing causes physical uh, and mental collapse of the enemy was the dominant idea of British air theory. Um, and one of the reasons why this was, was that this was how many British military planners, British civil defence planners uh, and British air defence planners assumed that Britain would be affected by round-the-clock bombing. If the Germans had learned um, a lesson from Spain and they had learned about how close support aviation and air superiority, particularly fighter and um, light bomber superiority, uh, had won uh, battles in. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Spain. The RAF doctrine uh, came from the RAF's um, interwar experiences, as I previously mentioned, across the British Empire, which was more to do with aerial policing. Um, the idea, um, often cited by Churchill, of um, bombing uncivilised tribes. Um, the use of aircraft to enforce local control against rebel tribes 
in um, as the uh, manual uh, puts it in um, extraordinarily explicit colonial terms, semi-civilized peoples, was um, taken as the kind of the model to explain what happened if a civilized state, for want of a better term, were subjected to uh, heavier bombing. So what the British were essentially doing were taking the uh, colonial air practices of uh, bombing rebel tribes and bringing them back to Europe. Um, there is a, a great deal written uh, about the horrors of the two world wars really being the kind of colonial practices, the um, racial and genocidal colonial practices that Europeans had uh, acquired and had uh, developed over several centuries of colonisation being brought back to Europe. And here's a, a classic example of where that is indeed the case. Um, tribal communities, uh, it was argued by the uh, the RAF uh, air manual, uh, war manual, big pun, um, had vital centres which governed their existence. Um, to target these intelligence centres would allow uh, small bombers, light bombers, um, to destroy them and uh, in doing so would cause, would bring the tribe to heel. Often this was carried out in parts of the Middle East, Mesopotamia uh, and in Afghanistan. Um, the Air Ministry's Director of Plans, John Slezer, um, said in the late 30s um, that air uh, policing worked because whether the offender concerned was an Indian frontier tribesman, a nomad Arab of the northern deserts, a Morelli slaver on the border of Kenya, or a web-footed savage in the swamps of the southern, Afghan uh, southern Sudan, there are almost always some essentials without which he cannot obtain his livelihood. So, one of the reasons for air policing was that it was going to make the British Empire uh, more versatile uh, and more likely to hold together, cheaper to operate, um, planes being at the time generally cheaper to run than uh, gunboats, and the empire would be managed from the air. Um, and policed from the air. It was uh, about trying to apply new technologies to the gradual process of imperial decline. One example uh, of this uh, aerial policing was uh, of Amboland, uh, which is in southern Africa um, in 1938, where the native uh, Kwame people were uh, bombed into submission by uh, the British uh, using just uh, three aircraft um, that uh, saw the uh, the camp of uh, Chieftain Upumbu, Upumbu um, destroyed uh, and his cattle uh, driven off. The cattle, of course, representing the entire wealth of, of the tribe. This was evidence in a limited scale that uh, economically a subject people could be brought to their needs uh, through the, the simple operation of, uh, of air power. Obviously, a, a world away from uh, an industrialised civilization like Germany, um, but the, uh, the likes of Bomber Harris and um, the chief of air staff, Charles Portal, believed that the, the principle uh, applied. The uh, policy of air policing and using bomber aircraft as a strategic tool, was shared by all of those who later 
were in the senior echelons of the RAF during the war. Charles Portal, Arthur Harris, who of course was given the nickname Bomber Harris. And throughout the 1920s and 30s, the RAF is engaged in these small conflicts across the British Empire. They are uh, numerous and they give the uh, senior figures in the RAF the belief that wars can be won in this way uh, and that the empire is really just a kind of a laboratory for air policing and that perhaps in future uh, other European uh, neighbours can be policed in the same way. Uh, there is all sorts of language to describe um, the Germans during the war as barbaric and uncivilised and a kind of a barbarian people that, now, that must, and in Harris's language, be taught a lesson. Charles Portal explained in 1941 to Churchill um, the nature of the mission. He said, In short, it is an adaptation, though on a greatly magnified scale, of the policy of air control, which has proved so outstandingly successful in recent years in the small wars in which the Air Force has been continuously engaged. So Richard Overy writes, this perception of bombing serves to explain the wide gap between the strategic vision at the heart of the interwar RAF and the reality of Britain's bombing capability and defence strategy in the 1930s. Imperial air policing was undertaken in conditions of clear visibility, little or no opposition and low level attack, none of which would be true of an aerial offensive undertaken in Europe. As a result, colonial practice did not persuade Britain's military leaders to bank everything on the bomber. And wise they were, because, as it says here, there is a gulf of difference between bombing um, Afghan or African tribes um, in, with virtually no opposition, other than perhaps a, a small amount of rifle fire, to flying over a heavily defended Germany uh, dotted with uh, anti-aircraft weapons and with an effective uh, fighter cover. So the uh, optimism of Bomber Command was not shared. And if you look at the uh, the statistics and the, of the losses in Bomber Command, uh, the rate of attrition uh, during the war is absolutely enormous. But we'll, we'll talk about that actually um, slightly later. The fear of bombing itself uh, forced... Uh, during the late 1930s, priorities to begin changing, particularly as Germany was identified as the, the most likely enemy, um, and the uh, establishment of air defences against bombers becomes far more urgent. The Joint, uh, military, uh, the Joint Planning Committee was given the task in 1934 to estimate the probable effects of a German knockout blow from the air. Um, this was a, a massive overestimate, um, but it was thought that the um, first wave of attacks would kill 150,000 people in the first week and render millions homeless. Of course, the total losses are about a third of that for the entire war. The uh, panic-filled uh, rhetoric of the time uh, and the uh, fears uh, that continue to animate uh, the chiefs of the defence staff um, about the potential scale of devastation 
um, and the possibility that um, there could be uh, almost anarchy in the country if um, bombing proved to be as devastating as, as it was predicted, led to um, Sir Thomas Inskip in 1937, who was the Minister for the Coordination of Defence, to tell the RAF that really the entire role of the force was to prevent British cities from being knocked out. Um, the Committee of Imperial Defence re- created guidelines for air strategy uh, in which the Air Force would have to support the Navy and Army, uh, defend the mainland United Kingdom from attack and try to inflict aerial damage on the enemy's strike force. So this is really the, the kind of the, the blueprint for um, the Battle of Britain. As far as strategic bombing went, there were instructions for uh, a counterattack uh, against the Ruhr, the industrial heartland of Germany, but this would only be if there was politi- uh, p- political permission to do it, and only after the RAF had met its other commitments it had uh, devoted enough aircraft to defending British uh, airspace. Um, so this idea of the, the balanced force started to fly in the face of everything that senior RAF men believed. Senior RAF figures like Harris, like Portal, who believed that bomber command was the essence of the RAF, uh, began to have the uh, political pressure put on them to um, spread um, air crews, training and aircraft resources from fuel to aircraft production evenly, um, even though perhaps this was a a very good idea, um, evenly between uh, air defence and uh, offence. And this meant that there was a kind of um, schizophrenic culture within uh, uh, within RAF strategy. Um, uh, Two competing strategic visions of equal value one uh, based in the idea of defence and one based in the idea of strategic bombing as offence. Um, and it would be, it would, as with the uh, US Air Force, it would take the experience of actual warfare to see these competing priorities evolve, emerge and change and develop. And how um, the, particularly during 1940, the competing demands of the um, air ministry, of Churchill and of the nature of conflict uh, shaped the RAF and shaped the nature of aerial warfare throughout the rest of the war. Anyway, I'm going to finish there. Um, Thanks very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this and we'll catch up for more uh, content on uh, air policy in the not too distant future. Thanks. All the best. Bye bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.